You can always find a way to get the answer that you'd like out of a data set. And the most important thing is really to think hard about the question that you're asking and figure out, are you being fair or are you injecting some sort of bias into your analysis? As long as you can do that, you can basically do good science. I think that's the way to make progress. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. A computational biologist by training, Imran Haq has almost uniquely managed to achieve what often seems impossible, embracing the promise of data science and medicine while retaining his critical faculties. I suspect he's precisely the sort of innovator required at the intersection of medicine and big data. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's show is sponsored by Idea Pharma, the industry's leading path to market strategy practice, bringing more great medicines to patients. You can find them at www.ideapharma.com. So, Lisa. Oh, my goodness. Yes, David. All right. So, um, our guest today hails from the Bay Area. Um, a little bit more recently, uh, mm-hmm. they grew up, did the whole Bay Area thing. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how many more people are going to be able to say that because it's just getting increasingly unaffordable. How, how else have things changed from the time when you grew up when everything when was When the good? dinosaurs roamed the earth. Right, exactly. Yeah, so I grew up in the Bay Area too. I, didn't, I wasn't born here, but I did move here when I was pretty young, when I was nine. And um, my dad was an entrepreneur and he came, he came here to start his company and raise venture capital, which, you know, yeah. at the time was weird and novel and nobody knew what the hell that meant back in the 70s. Whoa. And, um, you know, it's so different now. In what way? Um, well, just the the tech invasion. I mean, back then there were a couple companies, you know, Intel and Raytheon, but there weren't a lot of big tech companies. You didn't pay for your gas with stock options. You know, you didn't <laughs> um, have that infusion of culture. Really, most of that land, Silicon Valley, was still uh, farmland, frankly. Wow. And... Um, the Bay Area was like any other small town. I'd come from Prince, New Jersey. It looked just the same. It was no big deal. Wow. You know, uh, but boy, it's it's changed a lot. Yeah, but we still have dinosaurs. Uh, they're those, uh, the ones near 280. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Flintstone House that uh, you read that about. That is correct. That is correct. All righty. Well, um, someone who's definitely not a dinosaur, he said awkwardly transitioning, um, <laughs> is uh, we're actually really delighted to welcome to today's show one of the very sharpest rising stars in data science and health, Imran Haq. Welcome, Imran. Hi, David and Lisa. Nice to, uh, nice to be here. Hello. All right. So I first met Imran back when I was uh, chief medical officer at DNA Nexus. And I was at some genetic conference in the Bay Area, I think, and I saw this captivating poster by a guy at a company called Council. Council does carrier screening. It allows future parents to, to test and see if they carry rare, significant, recessive genetic mutations that could potentially impact the fetus if the fetus gets a bad gene from each parent. So this sort of testing is routinely done and paid for by insurance for some conditions like Tay-Sachs in those of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage or CF in the population at large. But Imran's work suggested that while rare disease screening generally wasn't paid for because they're, well, rare, it turns out that if you do the math, the risk of a fetus having two bad genes for one of these rare diseases is actually higher than the risk of CF. And hence, if CF testing makes sense to payers, it should similarly make sense to cover testing for the large range, large panel of rare genes that council looks at. So Imran, did I summarize your work right? And do you want to explain what you were trying to do at council when you sort of generated these data? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good summary. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely can't take sole credit for this, right? This was a vision that the, that the company was, was founded on. And, 
you know, I happened to be in a place where we were generating a lot of data and we could actually test that hypothesis. Um, so what we were doing, you know, the vision was to try to unify all genetic tests into um, into really one test, right? Because with the falling cost of DNA technology, you could test 100 things for exactly the same cost as testing one. Um, the big barrier that we had was actually in the clinical community where people weren't clear on whether it made sense to test for all of these diseases, whether or not it would have any impact, whether these diseases were even important and so on. Um, and so long story short, you know, over the course of the many years that we were doing this and building up scale, we were eventually able to run very, very large studies. Um, and so sort of the capstone to this came in 2016, um, where we published a paper in JAMA that included literally about one in every 1,000 people in the U.S. You know, you, you don't get study sizes much larger than that. Uh, and we showed exactly what you were what you were describing, right, that by testing all of these um, diseases together, um, that these, you know, so-called rare diseases cumulatively were actually much more common than conditions um, that people knew about, things like trisomy 21, Down syndrome, um, or neural tube defects like spina bifida. Um, and furthermore, we showed that the way that the guidelines were, were implemented um, led to different outcomes as a function of ethnicity, um, because there were certain ethnic groups um, that might have, you know, 50 to 60 percent of their rare disease risk captured by, gu by guidelines, whereas other groups, which were less well studied when the guidelines were written, may have only had about 6 percent of that risk captured. Um, so the major contribution was really just, you know, actually taking a look at all of the data, all of the population, and showing how we could use technology um, to, to really improve health outcomes sort of across society. Well, let me ask you a question about that because, you know, like with many diagnostics, there's always the risk the, of the, so what do you do about it? And I mean, if you find out, you know, you are potentially going to have a child with a, a, a real problem, you have three choices. You know, don't have a child, have an abortion if you get pregnant and find out there's a problem, uh, or take your chances. Now, will any of those decisions change for people when they have these, ta you know, as a result of having even more information about these problems? Well, so there, there is actually a fourth option, right, which is it's sort of intermediate in there. It's called IVF-PGD, or in vitro fertilization, with pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Um, a, a lot of syllables for a pretty uh, easy concept, which is basically you do IVF, um, you'll screen each of the embryos and, and find one that is not actually double recessive for the trait in, in question, and then implant that. Um, so basically, all right. For, you know, so that's a rich person answer. Yeah, that's exactly. A rich person like that, solution. That, that's not cheap, but it's definitely a, a way to go, right? Um, so you're right, and and you know this is definitely one of the big considerations with regard to this testing. I think something that's important is that you know this is not unique to the idea of expanded carrier screening, right? This happens with any genetic condition that that you might want to test. Um, so, you know, on one side, yeah, people actually do, you know, have, have made uh, changes based on this. Um, but beyond that, we actually directly studied this question, or, or really, you know, my clinical colleagues did study this question, um, where they actually did follow-up surveys um, with couples who were identified as so-called carrier couples, um, ones in which um, both, you know, prospective mom and prospective dad are carriers for the same disease. Um, and they did find that, that, in fact, you know, people did change their reproductive decisions um, as a consequence of, of receiving these results. And uh, that came out, I think, in the Journal of Genetic Counseling a couple of years ago. So how did the payers, I mean, what, you know, when I, um, uh, when I sort of talked to some of the folks in some of the genetic, you know, who do sort of in the, in the genetic testing, uh, the, um, uh, um, what do you call it, FMI you know, Foundation, um, the, the, you know, sort of the, the um, sort of the early CEO of that, 
I don't think I even ever ran into him at a conference where he just wasn't anguishing about dealing with payers. Um, how did payers react to your arguments? What surprised you about your interactions with him? Yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting question. So, you know, the first answer, how did payers react, you know, at least to the new technology and the kinds of testing, um, from the payer perspective, they're paying out for testing on CF, and so you get paid for testing CF or, or other diseases like that, right? Then the question becomes, are you going to reimburse, you know, additionally for the, the rest of the conditions that are being tested, right? Um, you know, interactions with the, there's sort of a, a standard way that diagnostics get evaluated, right? You get these three pillars of analytic validity, right? Can you actually measure accurately whatever it is that you say that you're measuring? Um, clinical validity, whatever you're measuring, whether it's a gene mutation, a circulating protein level, what have you, does that actually correlate with the clinical outcome that you care about? Um, and then clinical utility, does it actually change um, outcomes for, for individuals, right? Um, and so I think the responses that we got from, from insurers were basically like, well, you got to show those three legs and then we can have a conversation. I um, mean, that's really the direction that we took with our, um, with our uh, clinical development research council, right? You know, showing the analytic validity, you know, publishing validation papers on, um, on our tests, um, showing the, the clinical validity, which in this case is largely do the mutations that you're calling disease causing actually cause disease? Uh, and showing basically that, you know, we were doing this sort of as best as possible, given the standards in the field. Uh, and then finally, clinical utility, do the results of these testing actually change health outcomes in any way, which, which comes back to the, uh, the paper that, that I was just mentioning, Louisa. So is the slippery slope, and maybe it's a good slippery slope, I don't know, but is that if CRISPR ever becomes something you can really use in a scalable, now you have to cover it for people who have these challenges and who get pregnant. Is that going to become the, uh, the treatment? That's a really interesting question, right? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, on one hand, you know, you could argue, well, yeah, you know, you, you ought to do that. And then the question becomes, well, where and who are you actually CRISPRing, right? Um, <laughs> are you doing this, for example, in an, are you, well, I, I mean, really operationally, are you right. doing this, you know, in IVF, right? At which mm -hmm. point, well, why would you do that rather than doing PGD? Right, right. right. Are you doing this as a gene therapy um, you know, you know, sort of in utero, are you doing it after birth? Um, in all of these, you're going to have technical considerations like, you know, are you getting massive off target? Like how reliable is this? How much of the tissue do you actually have to transform? Um, so I think there are a lot of, of really technical and operational considerations. Or could you fix the one of the parents' yeah. <laughs> genetic lines? So, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the reason it's especially fraught, that even assuming one could do it, was because all this, all of what you're describing really seems to much of it would really involve germline mutations where, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're, the offspring could potentially be impacted as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, let's just take a step, uh, a step back, um, uh, just to backfill a bit, um, to understand how you got involved in all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So as we, were, as we were kind of alluding to earlier, a Bay Area boy born and raised in a house of underachievers, as I understand it, um, your uh, dad is an electric engineer, the disappointment of his family, you told me, because he was the only one of four siblings not to get an MD. Is that right? Yeah, so he has uh, he has two brother or he he has one brother and and two sisters, all three of whom are MDs, most of whom married MDs, um, and he's the one that 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 had to go off and you know get a PhD rather than an MD. So, what a loser! You know, I, I don't know exactly how that looks. <laughs> that said, you know my my grandfather was actually a, a a PhD in geology, as it turns out. So you know I I don't think we exactly looked down on scientists and engineers in our family. Where did you actually grow up in the Bay Area? What part? Uh, so I grew up. Uh, in San Jose uh, until okay. basically in, until high school. And then we moved up the peninsula. 
um, and then off to Berkeley, uh, and then over to Stanford. So really, the only place I haven't lived uh, so far is in North Bay. All right. All right. So just to take it back, so you were the, uh, I understand you were the oldest of three brothers. I can appreciate exactly what that's like. <laughs> um, in a household that you told me was characterized by very high expectations, um, which is, I think, how you wound up receiving a programming book from your dad called C, the programming language C, by example, uh, while you were in elementary school. <laughs> Do you care to elaborate? Yeah. So um, Thanks, Dad, but I wanted a baseball mitt. <laughs> Well, so, you know, the, the, the backstory to this was in my elementary school, I think starting in first grade or so, they actually started us with doing computer programming in a language called Logo, where you basically give this little turtle directions to, to draw things on the screen. And I was not very good at it. Um, what I later found out was that I was bad at it because I'm not good at drawing, not because I'm not good at computers. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in I think fourth or fifth grade, my dad gave me this book that you mentioned, See by Example. Um, it's about a thousand page tome, right? And, and he basically dropped it on the desk and said, learn this. Uh, and, you know, being the dutiful son that I am, I, I went ahead and I did. Um, uh, you know, which, you know, at the time, C was, uh, you know, one of the more high level languages that people would use. And now, you know, if you say you're writing something large in C, people are like, oh, my God, why would you do that? That's so hard. Hmm. So uh, that, that is uh, that's, that's such a funny uh, route. Um, so, so that's you were doing that in elementary school. You were saying, right? Um, and uh, it sounds like you've maintained your interest uh, all the way through uh, through college. Where? Uh, well, what choice did he have? He wasn't going outside to meet people. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so at at Berkeley, you studied both double E and CS, um, and apparently, um, sort of like Lisa. <laughs> uh, no, not exactly. Um, and then. On top of that, you developed an interest in computational biology. Um, and then from there, you went and got a PhD in, com- in CS at Stanford. Go Bears. Which, of course, is super hardcore. Now, during the time you were at Stanford, you connected with several people we know and admire. Daphne Kohler, obviously, was also on our show, uh, now at Incitro, and uh, Vijay Pandey at Andresen. Can you tell us about the impact, I think it was Vijay in particular, had on your thinking over the years, you know, from the beginning? Yeah, you know, so I actually met Vijay for the first time um, as a college student when I did an internship um, at IBM, um, where I was working on some molecular dynamics and protein folding work, and he actually came to our end of the summer poster presentation. Um, Now, it was really cool to meet him because I had actually encountered the Folding at Home project, um, which which he had started. Um, Basically, it lets you install a program on your computer, donate extra cycles to protein folding research. I'd encountered that when I was in high school. Uh, so I was like, oh, my God, this is the guy who did this. Man, you are hardcore, by the way. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I went to Stanford uh, and, you know, ended up joining BJ's lab. Uh, and the things that I really appreciated about BJ were that he was remarkably insightful about problems. I remember this one particular case where, you know, I, I had just sort of thought of some off-the-wall idea. It wasn't clear whether it was useful or where it was going, um, but nevertheless, I'd hit a roadblock in this. And I think you know some other advisors would, would say, why are you even bothering with this? This isn't useful. Instead, he was like, huh, what if you solve for eigenvalues in that? Uh, and it turns out that, that literally that one little bit of insight ended up becoming about half of my thesis. Um, and so he was really wow. good at, at you know, finding, finding the insights and letting problems you know, go where they needed to go, uh, and then supporting you in, in all the ways that, that you needed. How did he also get you uh, or connect with your, you know, obviously, um, 
so for those who don't know, so he trained right as a computational biologist, um, you know, and now as a context which you encountered him at Stanford. Now he's a partner at, at Andreessen, who has a lot of experience now in um, working with early stage startups, you know, helping develop Andreessen's efforts in sort of the bio, uh, biological space. What did you learn from him in terms of how to apply your skills, um, you know, in data science and in computation? Where were the opportunities? Well, especially in the startup milieu, right? right. Which is a very different world than the, the scientific one. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where? How do you take that skill set and gainfully apply it uh, in as an entrepreneur? Well, I'm, I'm not going to lie. When I was coming out of school, you know, you, you, you mentioned the phrase gainfully employ. Uh, I came out of school and I was just amazed. I'm like, wait, people will pay me for the stuff that I do for fun? That's fantastic. <laughs> Um, so, you know, what, what I learned in the lab was that, you know, there was a lot that you could do, um, with statistics. Um, everybody in that lab was a better statistician and mathematician than I was, uh, <laughs> which, you know, made me feel pretty bad about myself until I came out and I realized, oh, well, well actually learning from these guys made me better than a lot of the other people that I see. Um, and, you know, just sort of trusting in the, in the stats and the numbers to, to pull through is really valuable along with the power of having really good software engineering to be able to tie this all together, right? Um, because you end up with groups of people who are really mathematically good, um, but have a hard time coping with the, the scale of the data and the problem that they're working on. And on the other side, um, you have folks who can put together software systems, but don't necessarily understand what's going on underneath the hood of the system that they're analyzing. And so being able to bring the science and the statistics and the software together, I think it was a hugely valuable skill set. The weird thing about PhDs is that the academic system, I think, really rewards you for going ultra deep in one thing. Um, and if you're broad and know, you know, quite a bit about a lot of different things, that doesn't have nearly the same reward. Interesting. Um, the weird thing is that in industry, it's exactly the opposite. Um, and so, you know, I think BJ encouraging me to explore that breadth and develop all these skills, like really did end up being useful for um, me going into industry, which is, you know, where even when I joined the lab, I thought I was going to go. So does that make you not a real scientist anymore among the eyes of the scientists? Uh, you know, it's a good question. Um, uh, questions of identity are, are, are always question. a little bit fraught. You know, when I talk to biologists, they think I'm a computer scientist. And when I talk to computer scientists, they think I'm a biologist. So so who knows exactly what I am? Uh, uh, I would say maybe a political scientist with an answer like that. Um, <laughs> so, so, so now, so with that context, and, um, you know, we sort of understand how you sort of more or less got to council. And I, I understand you got it through, you know, through, you know, with uh, on the recommendation of VJ, you had a connection with council. Um, and then you had the opportunity to join a very interesting, very trendy company called Freenome that was focused on the early identification of cancer by looking for evidence of it in the blood. Now, this is a question that you pursued in collaboration with an academic colleague, Olivier Elemento, and published a captivating, truly game-changing paper, essentially saying that if someone wants to look for a new cancer in the blood using shed DNA alone, this might not work because there may not even be a single molecule of the tumor DNA in a typical blood draw, and you would essentially need to exsanguinate someone to have a reasonable chance of making a diagnosis, which I guess would solve one problem but create another. Um, so can you, but can you talk about, this was, <laughs> but, but this was breathtaking because there was all this sort of hype about, okay, well, we're going to have, the, you know, you can do PCR, you can, the idea is that even if there's a trace of one, you know, a, a very small amount of something, because tumors are sort of like shedding DNA into the blood, um, if you can just find a little bit of it, you can find more of it, and 
you know, you can be able to identify um, uh, cancers. Um, and then you published this, you know, academic published paper, um, you know, peer-reviewed paper that kind of called into question some of the underlying assumptions. Could you go into that? Yeah. So to, to be fair, I don't think we ever actually pushed it all the way through peer review. You know, we published this as a preprint on BioArchive. Um, we did submit it for review, but but honestly, I had other more interesting things to spend my time on. I felt like we had made the point with the with the paper being out there and everybody had seen it. Okay. Um, now, you know, the point of this was really that, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, you could say, technological exceptionalism, right? That, um, you know, as long as the technology gets better, any problem at all can be solved. Um, I had done some previous work on liquid biopsy and, you know, I'd seen like, hey, you know, you're getting into really rare event detection. It's not clear to me whether or not technology can solve this problem. Um, and so what I did was basically just pull on that thread, right, and figure out, okay, you know, is this something that, that you can solve or is it something where you're actually fundamentally limited by the underlying biology? Um, so, you know, I, what, what parts of that would you, would you like to, to hear about? But that's just so interesting. I mean, what you're sort of essentially saying is even with the most magical thing, you can't, um, I guess like Dennis Miller would joke about, like, you know, 10 of nothing is nothing. <laughs> so it's like you can amplify the crap out of something, but there has to be at least something there. And you, you can't amplify something or you can't ex- you know, do something if there's nothing. And I think the way you framed it is just so interesting. It, it, go ahead. Well, I also it. think it's interesting, you know, coming from the standpoint of like the companies that were in doing liquid biopsy, and there was a you know a rash of them at the same time, right? Ha- had so much hype and had so much money thrown at them at crazy valuations, and it's gone very quiet. It's gone very quiet, and I just wonder, you know, how I think about the hype cycle of a lot of these interesting technologies applied to biology and how much in a way it's like pharma you're just taking a chance so you know is the molecule going to work or not i don't know i'll let you know uh same thing with the technology it's not that much different so without discussing a specific any specific company whether ones you're associated with in the past or not just in general it would be great to hear your reaction to lisa's observation sure so you know what we discussed in the paper um was a couple of key observations from biology right on on one side what we've just mentioned that you know, if you're looking for one particular mutation, right? So if you're looking for, you know, one KRAS mutation or one MIC amplification, something like that, um, that in very early stage cancer, you know, you might be able to get, you know, 50% sensitivity or so. But beyond that, you're just going to be limited by the fact that there's not enough DNA floating around in the bloodstream, right? We also talk about the idea, well, okay, instead of looking at one mutation, maybe you could look at a lot of mutations, right? Maybe these are mutations, maybe these are epigenetic changes. It doesn't really matter. The math works out fairly similarly. Um, That can help boost that probability because you essentially get more shots on goal. But the risk that you run into um, is that you might start to compromise your specificity because what we found now is that as people age, um, they actually build up this this crazy landscape of mutations mm-hmm. um, in apparently healthy tissue that actually, you know, are the same mutations that we see in cancers in tumors. Um, and so, you know, there we were, you know, the, the concern was basically it's not clear whether or not there's a way to get around this. You could find some the point is that you could find that someone had a RAS mutation somewhere and come to the erroneous conclusion that, oh, that's signs they have cancer, where in reality, it could be a unaffected tissue, like a tissue that happened to have a RAS mutation, but it isn't going to become a cancer. It's not coming from a cancer. It's just something that is uh, that is seen. And you could just go crazy with all of those false positives. 
Exactly. I think I think that's a that's a big concern, right? So a really interesting example of this comes from the biology of the esophagus. Um, so um, Inigo Martin Carina's group at the at the Sanger Institute has been studying the somatic heterogeneity, and what they've shown in a in last year was that there's a particular gene, Notch one, that we very very commonly see mutated in esophageal cancer, uh, and yet as people age. Actually, you get this dense landscape of notch one mutations in physiologically healthy esophagus, right? And so it's not clear whether or not this is just something that promotes proliferation of, of both normal and cancer cells or whether it's actually linked to cancer at all. Uh, and so what that means is that you need to understand that landscape of that heterogeneity, how the body's own multiple genomes actually evolve over time in order to be able to filter these things out and, and do a good job of figuring out whether or not it's cancer. So that it, it's so, and so this is sort of part of this. It comes up also in a talk that you gave at a meeting last year, where um, you know you, you sort of this is one of the examples you discussed. But more generally, you were sort of warned about the dangers of like AI and biomarkers, and essentially expressing the concern that these techniques now are so powerful that false positives are almost unavoidable. Can you go through that? I thought it was so important. I mean, we'll share a link to it. I wrote, I wrote about it for Forbes. I think it's, it, I thought it was really about the most important concept that I even know of at the intersection of sort of, of data and biomarkers, which everyone trying to say, oh, we're going to use AI to figure out all this stuff. Um, so can you go through the basic, this basic argument that you're sort of describing about how almost the incredible power of AI can sort of lead to the worry of a rash of false positives and what to do about <laughs> the it. The power of good or evil. Sure. So, <laughs> you know, the, the fundamental concept, you know, as it's known in the machine learning literature is generalization, right? Let's say that you can build an algorithm that can give you a prediction based on some input training data, right? You have some initial discovery set, you measure some things on them, and you have an algorithm give you a function that goes from those measurements into the predictions that you want. The fundamental thing that you care about is not how well you can do on that training set, but actually how well you can generalize from that. If you were to take new samples and then measure them, are you actually as accurate? Now, the big problem is that, uh, is that machine learning algorithms are basically set up to try to get you as good of an answer as they can get you know, on that training set or on whatever you can use to, to, filter out, um, to, to filter out false positives. The big challenge is that there's a huge amount of intrinsic variability in biological data. There's a huge dimensionality to the measurements. And so actually demonstrating generalization can be extremely hard. And what I discuss in the talk is basically a number of methodological difficulties or, or, or deficiencies in the way that people have applied machine learning to biological data um, that gives us a rash of results that simply don't generalize or, or to use a different level, don't reproduce on further follow-up. Um, and the, the, the idea that I, that I propose in order to think about how to do experimental design, um, which sounds simple, but actually has a number of interesting consequences, um, is that instead of trying to design an experiment to succeed, you have to think about how to design it to not fail. Basically, figure out all the ways that the algorithm could be cheating, could be trying to uh, get the right answer, could, trying to get the, the right answer for, or sorry, the wrong answer for what looks correct to it, but is actually wrong, and filter those out systematically in, in the design of your experiment. So, like a trivial example of this, um, or you know, is you know, that's not sort of the batch effects, but for example, uh, programs that seem to be able to read images, but then it turns out that essentially all the cancer images are from like a cancer hospital, or or have like a a, a marker from like an ICD thing. 
you know, suggesting a cancer diagnosis that's actually on the imaging, and that's actually what they were recognizing versus something intrinsic in the image itself. In other words, there's something, nothing to do with the biology that's sort of like a cheat, but if you did, but that the, the algorithm sort of has, you know, it's accurate, but it's not obviously going to help you predict anything. Well, and I also, you know, I read an article recently, and I can't remember who, if it was Eric Topol or somebody else who wrote it, that, um, you know, when you asked you know, 100 doctors or 1,000 doctors, whatever it was, you know, if they were 100% confident in their diagnosis, they all said yes. And then when you actually looked back at the diagnosis, 30% were incorrect. So e- even worse than you're inferring it from what somebody wrote instead of the picture itself, the what they wrote could be wrong 30% of the time. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I've heard very similar stories, right? So, so one also dealing with pathology slides, you know, some folks had, had trained the model it worked really well on um, on the the training set that they got from the hospital. They got more samples from them. They they continued to do really well. Um, they got they got slides from from a different lab, and all of a sudden, it worked no better than chance. And when they looked more closely at the data, it turned out that the first hospital that they'd been working with, um, anytime the pathologist actually saw uh, what looked like a lesion, they would draw a big fat red circle on it, um, and they were actually getting those. So the model just learned to, to recognize the big fat red circle, right? <laughs> that, that, that's sort of an obvious one, but there are a lot of, you know, even more subtle biases that can, that can creep into data sets and, and that end up um, becoming big confounders for your ability to, to learn from this data effectively. Everyone wants to use, you know, these powerful emerging techniques to improve how we discover and develop drugs. What are your recommendations um, for drug developers who want to use these powerful emerging computational approach? Are there situations where you can appropriately leverage these tools and gain average insights? How do you how do you think about it? Because, it, you know, it sounds like people who are thinking, OK, it's going to be magic. It aren't right. But the idea is like kind of the old school people are like, see, there's nothing to see here. It's got to do it right. We've always been doing it. Like that's not going to like they're, they might be missing out, too. So how do you where is where is is there a golden mean? Is there some you know, where are the opportunities? How do you think about the opportunity space here? Uh, you know, I, I wish there were a simple answer because you could probably make a lot of money with it. But, um, you know, unfortunately... <laughs> and, you know, help, so is, and help a lot of people. Know, I, <laughs> I think there's interesting stuff here um, to think about sort of at, at all levels of the process, right? You know, for, for academics, there are a bunch of really interesting open scientific questions with respect to how you can build models that, that can generalize better and how you can assess whether or not there may be, um, you know, weird confounders or domain shifts going on. Um, when you're operationally doing this at a company, I think probably the most important thing um, is is really to uh, be respectful of the power that the methods can have and to not fool yourself because you're the easiest one to, you know, you, yourself is always the easiest one to fool, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and w- what I've seen is a lot of, you know, institutional or organizational pressure. I think this happens sort of all across the board to always show positive results, right? Um, in academics, we see this manifesting in, as, as p-hacking and in industry. Um, we see this with studies that don't reproduce. You know, if you keep slicing the data enough directions, eventually you'll get a result that you like. That doesn't mean that it's right. true. And so I think being really rigorous <laughs> about um, to have independent validation sets, uh, about trying to go through your data and find every possible confounder to test it, uh, and then finally to build methods to, to try to get around some of these limitations um, are, are key. But in the end, everything comes back to being honest with yourself and your procedures and your data. I used to have this uh, 
bumper sticker, which I wish I could find because it was so awesome. And it said, we have charts and graphs to back us up, so f*** off. And it was basically <laughs> the, uh, the thing that we used in the department of uh, – in our actuarial department to point out why our pricing was legitimate. <laughs> I can imagine that getting a lot of uh, – being very popular. So finally, I'm, uh, I know that um, you spent uh, – after some time at Freenome, you left and you're in the process of seeking out your next adventure. Um, uh, what sort of things, just sort of at a general level, or are you most excited about now? Where do you see yourself when we come, when we swing back to you in a year? Where do you think, or five years? Where 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 do you want to play? Where do you think you'll be playing? Yeah. So what I, you know, I'm a technologist at heart, and what I get really excited about is big, rapidly advancing technologies. So you know, if you go back, you know, 20 years, you know, when when I was in high school and and watching, you know, sort of the the computer revolution happen. Um, you know, we were still in the phase where computer power was, you know, doubling every 18 months, right? Um, and it was really exciting. And now we're in a state where the last time I rebuilt my desktop was five years ago and CPUs just aren't that much faster. Um, then we entered this phase where, you know, a, everybody loves talking about how sequencing was, you know, getting cheaper, faster than Moore's Law. Um, that lasted for a while. I think the, the pace of that acceleration has slowed down a bit. Now, the interesting thing about those, uh, about those two is that when you have exponentially improving computers, um, you can do a lot more in terms of analysis and crunch your data and build more complicated models. When you have a big advance in sequencing, this lets you do more observational studies on biology, right? For the first time, we're able to get um, exomes and genomes from entire populations. We wouldn't have been able to do that you know, almost 400,000 person study from council without those big price cuts. I think one of the most interesting things that's happened um, in the last sort of five years is our ability to not do just observational, but actually interventional biology at a really massive scale. So making use of things like massively parallel reporter assays, um, various multiplex techniques like CRISPR interference screens, um, multiplex chemistry techniques, and so on, um, just give you the ability to not just observe a lot of things, but actually intervene in them, which becomes really interesting with computation because you can think about building models and then very rapidly evaluating the predictions of those models and getting new data. And tightening that feedback loop, making it faster, is really the only way we're going to be able to advance the state of the art in actually making these models useful um, for complicated fields like biology. Right. So just to be clear, you're not talking, when you talk about this interventional biology, I mean, you're talking about these sort of super powerful screening techniques, essentially. You're not talking about massively crispering populations. You're talking about doing these very rigorous or like preclinical studies, the kind of things that I've heard Daphne Kohler talk about it in Citro, for example. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, w without talking about any any particular company, I think really talking about the, the technologies themselves, I think looking at what we can do, you know, at the molecular level, right? You know, if we're talking about dealing with, you know, molecular in vitro screens um, or at the cellular level, you know, I don't think anybody's really scaled this up to organisms because at that point you're talking about, you know, entire city blocks full of mice. Um, but even the ability to get down to the fundamentals of what's happening in biology there and, and, and screw around with it you know, literally three, four, five orders of magnitude um, more than we could before is, I think, a, a really exciting and potentially transformational. Right. That's super uh, interesting. So fantastic show. Um, if you had one thing to impart, Imran, to the audience or one thing you wish people understood better, what would that be, do you think? If you torture the data enough, it will speak. <laughs> 
<laughs> All righty. That's fantastic. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us. As you know, I've been, I'm super excited about the opportunity to have you on the show. I think that your deep understanding of biology and of data science, I think, is helping people think so much more clearly about this. You're so damn articulate. It's amazing. So really appreciate it. You know, like the Steve Martin thing. Some people have a way with words. Other people, um, uh, oh, oh, not halfway, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Rob. Take care. Have a great day. I love that topic. We've talked about it before. He is a very articulate guy. I think this issue of the sort of overpromise of AI in its current state is something we cannot over discuss. Because, <laughs> you know, I think it's this whole, you know, things that don't happen in two years, but they happen in 10 right. years kind of thing that people talk about. But it's probably not even 10 years because the data sources are so polluted. I think it's going to take a long time for the reality of this promise to be real. Well, I think what's so interesting is how it's evolved, where I think initially there was so much excitement with the super powerful analytical approaches that everyone was sort of focused on, okay, well, we're going to analyze the crap out of stuff. And then what that's led to is just exactly like you said, as usual, Lisa. Well, it's so funny because I think about like the last three or four years of venture capital. You know, if something didn't say AI, you know, it's AI for cat food. Nobody wanted to look at it. And I think it's become the opposite. It's starting to become like, you know, roll your eyes when you see it because well, of all of this stuff. Well, what, what I was trying to get at, where I think I, I think is a reasonable point of where some of this is leading, how after there were all these points about the analytics being powerful, what it really is exposed is just how messy and unreliable the underlying data are. So I think some of the real effort now, if you look at Daphne's, if you look at a lot of other efforts, are really trying to sort of go back and to rigorously and systematically collect the massive amounts of data that AI needs, but in a really much more robust and uh, deliberate fashion, so that in a way the power of the techniques can be unleashed on kind of better and more robust data sets. Let's hope. Let's hope. Alrighty. Well, please remember to rate us on iTunes, leave a comment, help others discover the show. You can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, Idea Pharma, the industry's leading path to market strategy practice, bringing more great medicines to patients. You can find them at IdeaPharma.com. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Be well. Go Bears. Go Bears.